Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For much too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality in leadership and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We absolutely must change this, and I hope that many of you listening right now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible in a way that works for you and for your families, so you can make the decisions that make our world and our organizations better places. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus, which is all about giving parents the support and space to progress to senior leadership in a way that works for them and their families. We have lots of free events and also lots of resources on leadersplus.org where you can download helpful toolkits such as on returning from maternity leave or securing a promotion as a working parent or thriving or surviving depending how you look at it as a dual career couple. We also have an award-winning global fellowship program for working parents who have big dreams for their careers but don't want to sacrifice everything for it. You will join a tight-knit supportive group of people. You'll get space to think about what you want for your life, for your family, for your career, a senior leader mentor and a lot of targeted support in order to get you where you would like to be. And you can find all that on leadersplus.org forward slash fellowship for the details. The next application deadline is on 20th March 2024 and you can download the brochure on leadersplus.org. Today Brian Ballantyne and I talk about expectations we have of masculinity and whether training can change behaviour. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Happy to be here. So my name is Brian Ballantyne. What I do for work at the moment is I'm on gardening leave. After 10 years at Amazon, I was part of the Worldwide Redundancies. So I'm currently applying and interviewing for a new job. I'm based in Luxembourg. I followed my wife to Luxembourg in 2005 when we got married. I've been working at Vodafone, where overall I worked for 12 years. And at the time I'd been there for five years, my wife had a chance to go from being a barrister in London to being at the European Court. So I said, great, I'll quit my job. Let's get married. I'll follow you to Luxembourg. Uh, We then had a few years in Luxembourg, had both our children, Gabby and Daniel, in 2007, 2008. So Daniel just turned 15 this week. Gabby turned 17 in January. So yeah, time flies. We went back to London for a few years, came back to Luxembourg for a different quality of life. Yeah, that's me. So in my home at the moment, there's me and my wife, Kate. Like I say, two teenagers and very similar to a teenager is our cat, Zyla, who always, you never know where they are, but they generally come back for food. So yeah, that's <laughs> us. We live in, in San Vila in Luxembourg. That's the best description of a teenager <laughs> that I've heard before. I don't have teenagers yet, but that is exactly how I'm imagining life will be with a teenager. And can you share with us one thing that you used to believe about combining a big career with young children that you changed your mind on? Wow, what a great question. It's funny, I think I always believed it was possible. Both my parents worked from full-time jobs in quite senior roles. We had a family with six children. So I, I always thought it was possible. It, I just assumed that you know both parents would work because both my parents had worked. But a lot of people don't have that assumption that 
you know, that the man should earn more, the woman shouldn't work, or it's unusual that the woman is working. So something that, that was just a natural assumption for me, you know, I'd be married to a woman and we'd both work and pursue our careers and we'd also have a family. This was just something I, I assumed I'd seen it with my parents. I'd seen it with other friends' families as well. So yeah, that's it's it's strange. It doesn't always work out like that. Maybe also internationally, there's different expectations as well for men and women. But maybe that's an assumption that I've been surprised to have challenged. Mm. Can you say a bit more about the international different expectations that you've experienced? Yeah, so I think in different countries. So I live in Luxembourg and even on the every year you have to do a tax return where you say this is what partner one earned, this is what partner two earned. And the way it's set up, you know, is that it assumes the man earns more than the woman. Now, my wife, wife earns more than me. And I have colleagues at Amazon who where the, the woman earned more, but sometimes even the man wasn't working. The tax form just errored. It just couldn't comprehend that the woman would be earning more than the man. And then often the way the taxing is set up is that it assumes that the woman or the mother will be at home with the children and the way that things are set up. So structurally, even you know, in Luxembourg, there was just it's assumptions or even the way the tax return works, it assumes certain things about you know the parents i think internationally you know i was previously managing a team of people in india in the middle east in europe in east and west coast america and there are different assumptions certainly in other parts of the world about men and women's role in society you know i remember filling in my first india visa you know and you could choose your occupation which included businessman and, and housewife there was no businesswoman there was no houseman so <laughs> sometimes it's just these small little things that you notice which reflect the cultural assumptions of the society. You know, when I was in America 10 years ago, they were talking about a man who'd taken parental leave, but they called it maternity leave because they, they just thought it was very feminizing for a man to take leave with his children. Whether that's an international thing, and I don't want to generalize America as a, as a wide place, I'm sure you'd have that in the UK as well, different attitudes towards kind of men and women, you know, different cultural attitudes as well. So yeah, that's I could talk more about it, but there's some examples. And when you had children and were lucky enough to have children, did you always plan how you were going to split responsibilities and how whose career would be kind of longer hours between you and your wife? Or was that something that you figured out along the way? In hindsight, it probably would have been a good idea to talk these things through more. What I found generally with having children is that you both parents arrive with a lot of expectations, either from their own childhood, you know, and my wife and our parents were both very different. Mine were very strict and all, my parents were very kind of liberal. And you don't realize these things until you have children, sometimes even with a second child and it starts, these assumptions kind of start coming through and you don't even realize that you had them. So maybe it would have been useful to plan in advance. I think I had expectations I'd be more hands-on. I think my wife was maybe surprised that I wanted to be so hands-on. You know, even when Gabby was born, we stayed in hospital for a week. There were some complications. And I even went, you know, my wife couldn't get out of the chair, the bed without a wheelchair. So even I took Gabby, it sounds silly in hindsight, to the all the different kind of classes, changing the nappy, even the breastfeeding, which maybe didn't make sense. But at least I learned that fennel tea could be quite useful. So my wife's like, why are you getting so involved? And, you know, so I don't know. I was just keen and enthusiastic and um, had no sleep. So yeah, so I guess I wanted to be involved. And we kind of just figured that out. I remember when my wife had Gabby at home as a baby and, you know, I'd come in through the door and she'd just hand Gabby to me and say, your turn. So, yeah, I think we kind of figured things out as we went. 
we've always kind of shared responsibilities. I mean, I grew up in a household where we all had household chores. And so I was used to kind of getting more involved. So we, we we're probably 50-50, I think, in terms of how we split cooking, cleaning, shopping, laundry, looking after the children, mental load about Christmas or the holidays or, or admin or school doctor's appointments or any, everything. So I think we both assumed that we would, we would be more 50-50, but then you kind of take each thing as it comes along. If, if it starts to feel like someone's doing more, more of their share, then it's a conversation to try and balance things out. Or if someone has more on at work that time, you might flex it a little bit. I think planning is definitely a good idea. And in hindsight, it would have been good to talk all this through about being married, about having children, about the pressure having children puts on your relationship. Yeah, I think if I did it all again, then definitely some support and having those conversations in advance and clarifying those expectations could have been very useful. And you did take quite, well, you are now, and you did then take a really active role in your children's child care can you just paint a picture of what that looks like in practice obviously I presume now as teenagers maybe you as parents you're not always as much in demand by your children but just over the years what was your role and how involved were you? Yeah these days if my children phone me it's generally you know to request finance or transport so can I have some money can you have a lift you know today Gabby has a Greek lesson every week just wanted to rearrange that so she could go to the cinema with some friends but I think when they were small, I mean, my, my wife and I both work pretty much full-time. My wife took maternity leave with the children. I've still worked pretty much full-time. I took a three-month sabbatical when the children were about eight or so years old, just because some of my wife had been taking a month leave with the European courts. And I felt like I, the children were growing up really fast. I wanted to spend some time with them. It was a good moment before they became teenagers to have some time together. And we went traveling together, which wasn't easy. So I wasn't a stay-at-home dad. I think we were pretty shared in terms of taking the children to the preschool or the school, picking them up afterwards. So, you know, whether that was when we were living in Luxembourg or living in London and, you know, rushing after work, you know, to get to the childcare on time. And in London, it would be about five for six and then you'd be fine if you weren't on time. So it was very stressful. In Luxembourg, it could be between six and seven. It was easier to get there. Yeah, we always had, you know, evening meals together since the children were small and, I was just thinking, yeah, it was, you know, I was at Amazon the 10 years and the children were four and six when I started at Amazon. And I always made a point of leaving on time so that I could pick them up and we could have a family meal together. And probably a lot of that was my wife's insistence. You know, when we were growing up, we didn't have dinner with our parents because they were working till later. But even now, they're 15 and 16, nearly 17, and we still have a, a family dinner together seven days a week, you know, with, with a few exceptions if there's something going on. And it's great. And I think, you know, if, if you don't spend time with your children when they're small, they won't want to spend time with you when they're older. And there's definitely, you know, they've, they're behind their shut doors a lot of time or relationships or with friends. But definitely it's, you know, if you want to spend time with your children throughout their life, start when they're small and so that they like being with you and they, they want to spend time with you. But yeah, I think we've pretty much shared things along the way. In my experience, there's often an expectation for a man in a senior role to have a partner at home that sorts out all the life admin takes the kids to the doctor's appointments and so on and obviously you didn't have the luxury of having someone who dealt with all of that stuff were there any assumptions that you were faced with along those lines or not at all yeah it's funny i don't know whether it's a luxury or it's a privilege you know you, what i mean by that is it's nice to be able to go with your children to these appointments it's you know it's stressful sometimes trying to pick them up and take them you know there's a variety we you know daniel now needs to go to an orthodontist for the teeth and an orthophonist 
the speech therapist and then Gabby, you know, going to the emergency to get broken things fixed or, you know, going to Medicure Pedical or going to the psychiatrist or various appointments. But it's good to be able to be there with them for those experiences, you know, to hold their hand, to understand what's going on, to reassure them and also to have that time together, you know, in the car, like, you know, let's get you out of school early so we can go to this appointment. So I think it's it's a luxury to be able to take them, you know, is what I, what I mean. Yeah, and I guess maybe there's some fathers where their partner, for example, their wife or or another partner is doing everything, you know, doing all the school runs, thinking about everything, planning all the, the social activities, buying all the Christmas presents, doing the school parents' evenings. You know, we had a school parents' evening a couple of weeks ago, and in the class meeting, I was the only man there. You know, there's all these other other mums, and then me and my wife were both there. So it wasn't that I was there, but we were both there. But it was like, why is there a high proportion of women who care about their children's education or have time to come or are prioritizing it? Because these are also professional women as well. So yeah, I'm not sure where I'm rambling on to. I think it was, it's been good. I, I like to be hands-on. I like to be hands-on in my children's lives and you know that they know that I care about them and that I'm there for them. And sometimes it's me and sometimes it's my wife and sometimes they've got to figure it out themselves and get the bus or do the appointment themselves. So I think it's a good balance and I don't know how I'd feel about a relationship where my wife is doing so much of the admin in our relationship and I'm you know, obviously providing for a family, but it's much easier to be working and having fun, you know, in power, you know, in a quiet office than it is in a crazy home. So yeah, I think I had the luxury of, of all that time with my children. And I just want to come back to your upbringing because you mentioned you had five yeah. siblings and obviously two full-time parents. Now, a lot of people listening to this might feel guilty and maybe some of them don't, in which case wonderful, but I hear from quite a lot of listeners who do feel guilty at times about going to work or working long hours and many of them don't have six children so I was just wondering from your perspective as a grown-up child was there any damage done by that? I don't know you know it wasn't planned so how it worked was that my biological mother died when I was five or six I don't know exactly when and with my brother and sister we merged with another family and then there was another child and then that's how we've all grown up since we were small so we were kind of a family so I know some families plan to have six and, you know, however you, you make it. I think when you're one of so many children and your parents are working, but whether you get, my, my wife and I have different expectations about the amount of attention we're going to get from our parents, the amount of support we're going to get from our parents. I don't know which is better. I've just grown up to be more, maybe more self-sufficient, more, you know, emotionally self-sufficient as well. And I'm able to, whereas my wife expects more emotional and, you know, physical and financial support from her parents. I don't know which is better. I think, you know, when we were growing up, we had kind of childminders. So when we came home from school, there'd be, you know, typically a woman, you know, in her early 20s, you know, me as a teenage boy, it was great. I'd get to, <laughs> to chat to these people when I came home from school. And it wasn't my parents. It was another adult who was maybe quite fun and exciting. And we'd have dinner. It was quite relaxed, you know, and then, you know, we'd chat and it'd be someone who was interested in your day. And then my parents would come home later and then we can chat to them as well. So no, it was nice. I think it was a good experience. And I think guilt's funny, isn't it? Because sometimes we delegate how much is enough to other people. So we ask, you know, can I leave the office? Have I given enough to work? Have I given enough to my children? But really, you need to, you need to decide for yourself. Like, you know, it's almost like you know, spinning plates. Okay, I've given this much time to my children, this much time to my partner, this much time to work, this much time to myself. Okay, that's for me, that's a good balance. You know, of course, your children will always want more of you. Your boss will always want you to work more. Your partner may or may not want more of your attention. I think you need to decide for yourself. And I think, you know, there is there is a lot of guilt, and uh, maybe especially for mothers, but also for fathers as well, about, 
you know, am I being a good enough father? And I don't think I spent enough time with my kids. And if I could go back, I'd spend more time with my children and less time at work. And, you know, that was kind of just because they grow up so fast and you can't get that time back again when they're small and you can always keep working and doing more. So do I feel guilty? Mm. I don't know. I guess I made the choices I made at the time and my parents made the choices they made at the time, you know, and you do your best and maybe in hindsight you might have done it differently, but then who knows kind of what would have happened. Yeah, it's tough. You know, there's a lot of emotions around being a parent and how you balance that and how you set your boundaries at work and also set boundaries you know, with your children, with your partner as well. So it's, mm. yeah, it's tough to navigate. And why it's good to have people you can talk to and get emotional support along the way. Mm. And, you know, no, no matter how difficult it is with your children, to always try and talk things through with your partner and make sure that you're, you know, you're, you're a team and you're, you're supporting each other. You had, you're probably not allowed to agree with me <laughs> on the description of your employer, but I will just say that my impression is that you work for, you used to work for quite a competitive organisation and, you know, where you had a successful senior career. And I just wonder now you have been on gardening leave for a while, just looking at that period of going to work and working really hard. How did you ever know that you had done enough? Especially, I mean, you're not working in sales, you work more around training and development. So it's never clear. Have you met your target? I presume. How did you know that you had done enough? Was that something that was easy for you? towards the end or you're actually still a bit unsure i don't know because like i say i started at amazon my children were four and six when i left amazon they were 14 and 16 so there was differences about how much i just had to leave you know when they were small and they were finishing school or daycare at a certain time i had to leave and i had to be there and maybe i hadn't done enough that day and i kind of rejected the idea a lot of people say that they leave and then they pick up the kids and then they have to then they log on again in the evening i never did that i never logged on again in the evening and that felt like a real presenteeism or a kind of, you know, you're leaving on time, you know, to get your, your kids and you're having time as a family. And that time is so short. So you, you get the kids, you have dinner, whether it's six or seven or whenever, then you, you know, then you, you know, you got to prepare dinner, you got to clear up, you maybe you then talk to your wife, maybe have like an hour free time, then it's, then you're exhausted and you need to sleep. Like why to log on again, mm-hmm. to, you know, especially working in an American company, you log on again and people are wide awake in Seattle and happy to kind of give you things to do. Then you can't sleep properly. When do you get time to yourself? When do you get time to rest? And I think that felt like a real presenteeism thing. So I never did. I never logged on again. I left on time or I left the time I needed to to pick up my kids. You know, having done the work I did. And sometimes they say, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. And I think parents are very good at multitasking and being busy and getting things done. And sometimes I'd see, you know, men without children who wouldn't really do much during the day, but then would stay later and just maybe to kind of be present and to kind of give that appearance of being important. I was just got my stuff done and got out of there and, you know, I had to, had to go. So were you the only one, do you think, or one of the few people or was that quite a common thing not to log in again afterwards? Yeah, I got challenged on this sometimes. Well, first there was the leaving, you know, five or six, you know, and someone says, oh, having a half day. And it was funny that day I'd started at six in the morning with a call with China and said, yeah, I just did 12 hours. That's half of 24. So bye. But, you know, generally even working your hours, but sometimes I'd even, even not even going for the, with the kids, some, you know, I was, I'd go to a concert in the evening and I would have got an email at 8 p.m. saying, I need this in a few hours. I'm not going to, I didn't check my email. And it was for a vice president I was working for at the time. I just said I was at a concert or, you know, I could have been at a parents' evening or I was playing sport or I was doing something else. And 
you know, maybe there was some embarrassment for not having seen it or not done it, but I needed to set an expectation that this isn't how you train me and I'm going to train you how I work, that you need to give me advance notice. I'm not going to be checking my emails at that time of day. Or, you know, even there was an offsite meeting, you know, an hour away from where I live and I wasn't offered any accommodation. So every day I was driving back and forth and then why weren't you there at the evening event? And well, you didn't offer me any accommodation. It didn't work. I had to be back for my family. And so I don't know how much it was appreciated, but you have to set boundaries and you say, well, this is how it's working for me. You know, you train people, you know, you're an employee and you can train people that you'll be available. You know, what really upsets me is when women, especially being paid 80%, still working on a, on the Friday or the day off, you know, just for the present. I'm like, you're not getting paid. You know, this is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. My, my ideal is to get paid full time and work part time, you know, to work so fast, get all of your things done in less than 40 hours. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm reading a book at the moment that referenced this idea that actually when we become more productive, we should be able to reap the benefits yeah. of that partly by then having more time to do the, the things that we enjoy. I'm going to ask you very honestly, and we can edit this out if you'd rather not, but I'm interested. Do you think you behaving like this in an environment that clearly had more of an American working culture? Again, my words, not yours. Do you think that prevented you from getting promoted? Or did you get promoted regardless? I didn't get promoted to Amazon. So I was there for 10 years. I joined as a what's called a level six, a senior product manager, and I left as a level six senior program manager. My salary increased during that time. Did I get promoted? You know, I think a lot of me not being promoted was not being able to see my own value. And I had a lot of coaching and you know therapeutic support to start to see my own value. And probably I if you don't see your own value, then it's hard for other people to see it as well. So some of that's my own responsibility. Was it an American culture? You know, that's, I don't want to generalize. I guess, you know, I had the similar thing working for a European company, you know, at Vodafone, there was kind of presenteeism as well. I think, in, you know, Ameri- the American focus on economic interests above other social interests is one factor. You know, the reality is in America, there are fewer, employees have fewer days off. So, you know, working in a European company, it tends to be a bit quieter, you know, around July or August, maybe around half terms. They don't have this amount of holiday in America. So it just felt like there was never the downtime I was used to from working in a European environment. You know, in America, maternity leave is is kind of temporary disability. You know, it's not special time to spend with your children for their emotional development. This is time when you're disabled from doing your job. And so the idea of a man taking that, well, hang on, you're not expressing. You haven't got these issues. Why can't you work? Why can't you support? So I don't want to generalize about it. These are some of the facts about the differences. And yeah, there's other things, obviously, in Europe and other parts of the world. I think it's, it was working for a big corporate company, a large company, which was so big with a, a million and a half people that no one knows what anyone does. So there's a lot of dysfunctional politics, presenteeism, you know, performative work, which I like to get my job done and go. But yeah, I don't know. I think part, maybe partly it was, it was working for this specific American company where both my own they say at this company, it's where, where high performers go to feel bad about themselves. And, you know, maybe that didn't necessarily help develop my lack of self-confidence further. So, yeah, I think partly my, mm-hmm. my own responsibility and partly the working culture didn't support me, but getting promoted. And even when I was managing a team of 12 and really, especially during COVID, supporting people with salary advances to pay for medical care, you know, or helping people relocate, you know, out of the UK to a different place following Brexit to avoid, you know, harassment. I cared so much about my team and, you know, had great feedback from my team about, about me as a manager that cared for them and developed them and promoted them. I don't think this was really appreciated. And also all of the social responsibility work that I did, you know, with, with girls in coding, with different organizations, it would have 
you know, if I'd been my manager, I would have promoted me or given <laughs> some of that work. You know, whereas at Vodafone, I got two accessibility awards for the work I was doing on that. So, yeah, I guess different companies value things and promote people on different things. Yeah, I think there's a call also to choose the right organization, isn't there, in that story to an extent? Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm interviewing for uh, different organizations at the moment, and I'm being very critical as much as I can be not having a job to look at that alignment between my values and their values and look at that, what they value. So how do you test that? How do you test that in your interview i want to do an hour before and after once you you've uh, you're in a new role I'm, <laughs> I'm really curious now where what type of organization you're choosing but i'm interested for what how do you test whether the organization is aligned with your values i mean everybody can write a beautiful website yeah i mean i interviewed on friday with an organization and i was very much myself you know the first paragraph of my cv is the same as on linkedin these are my values this is what i stand for this is you know the integrity or you know or these are things i stand for so it gives them a chance to react to it and I, you know in the interview i got questions like where do these values come from or you know do you really think csr you know it makes sense isn't it just you know and then i was able to so first of all just be you know be clear on what your values are and i've worked with you know i've done executive coaching training so i've got clarity more clarity on my values you know so being bold about that this is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is what I stand against. And, you know, then you will either attract or deter certain organizations by default. Then I'm really looking for, you know, very curious. I'm looking at the people in that organization, looking at how they present themselves on, on social media, for example. You know, I'll ask questions looking on how I'm treated or what's seen as important in the interview. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've applied for various roles. And sometimes it's, you don't really know, but you can get a sense, especially in the interview and looking back on interviews I've had and then done the job for a couple of years. Some of those hunches I had in the, in the interview about a particular, maybe the hiring manager or about someone, one of the key stakeholders, you know, have played out. And so, yeah, I think it's really tuning in. And I, and I did some work with one of my coaches yesterday, even looking at things like the feelings wheel about how did I feel about how that went and how does that connect to my values? So you're getting this extra support from, a, you know, a, another person to help you figure out and kind of process, well, what did that tell you about your values? Well, that that really helps as well. But I'm learning as I go and I'll tell you more once I've figured it out. I would describe you as a bit of an entrepreneur on the side because you also were involved, aside from trying to drive change internally, you were involved in founding an organization which is all about supporting men to be allies, if I understand Yeah, I, it's a group called Men for Inclusion. In fact, just before this, we had a, a meeting with a law firm in Luxembourg looking at doing a kind of a lived experience survey to look at how men and women are experiencing the organization differently and kind of workshops we can have as interventions. And I kind of co-founded this with Gary and Mark a few years ago. They've really been doing a lot of the work and driving it. I'm now more on the advisory board. But yeah, absolutely looking at how men can be more in the conversation around kind of allyship or supporting not just women, but you know, all, all, on all dimensions of diversity and inclusion. And what do you know now through this work that you didn't know before? I think what's interesting is that, you know, what typically happens is that women's networks will come to Men for Inclusion and say, we think we have a problem, you know, our executive board is sexist or there's these barriers coming up. You need to come and train the men to be better allies. But the men don't necessarily want to be. <laughs> you know, they, they don't want to be trained. They're not interested in being allies. They've got power. They don't want to give it up. Or they feel like women are being prioritized and you know, they're even under threat. So there's clearly a demand. Or there's, there's, I think there's a need for men to be more involved 
in the conversation around gender equality. There's a need for men to be more supportive about women's career progression and also other you know, intersectional dimensions of, of that. I'm not convinced. I'm seeing more and more that a lot of men are not interested in this and, in fact, pushing against it. So, yeah, it's quite frustrating when you've got a service or an offering which would support men to have something, but they don't. It would be good for them, but they don't want it. In most cases, a lot of men are supportive and do want to do this. But yeah, it's an interesting kind of challenge. I watched something last night by Trevor Noah, who is a South African comedian. He was saying something along the lines that we have to be honest. If we're talking about privilege, that means, and, and if you are asking people to give up privilege, that means giving up something pretty amazing. And I was just interested in, in your view of actually honestly what is in it for men like why should men care apart from thinking about their daughters why should men genuinely care about supporting women's career progression isn't it nice to be only with people that, that look like yourselves in a boardroom it's sad that it takes you know a man born to a woman <laughs> and may have women you know sisters or you know women colleagues the point not until he has daughters and not all men with daughters, you know, to see like, oh, I'm going to be a dad advocate and uh, support women now. So it's a shame it takes that long for some people. But yeah, I think a lot of people who have always enjoyed that privilege, you know, I'm a white, straight man. I've got a lot of privilege, you know, and some people, some white men resent that. Maybe they've come from certain backgrounds or they've had challenges in their life, but, you know, do resent that. I think what was different for me is, A, having a kind of, kind of maybe slightly traumatic, you know, childhood my mother committed suicide after having manic depression and then, you know, other other kind of adverse childhood experiences going on. But then also kind of my stepmother was, you know, very good. And I think we've we've talked a bit about, you know, can training help kind of men be more, more supportive? And I think it's more kind of interventions and experiences. So, you know, for me, it was being encouraged to be an ally and being forced to be an ally. And what, what I mean by that is that I was at an old boys school in Birmingham and, you know, playing rugby and there was a letter home, you know, to, to the parents saying, you know, would, would would mothers and girlfriends and sisters like to come and make food and snacks for the boys and the fathers after the, the games? And some mothers and sisters did, but I said, no way. And she made me take letter after letter <laughs> to the rugby coach. This is before email, you know, to and from the rugby coach saying this isn't acceptable. I don't accept it. So I was kind of forced into allyship. I don't know. I think that was much more effective than training. And, you know, I've shown how to be an ally and how to say this. I don't agree with this. I don't accept it. That sounds like a tough thing to do for a teenage boy. Yeah, I was 15 to the same age that my youngest son is now. And then, you know, in, in the end of year rugby speech, you know, about each player, like Brian with, you know, his mum and, you know, challenging about women. And yeah, didn't, you didn't, didn't win me any favours with that. But I think you start to realise, well, what do, what do I stand for? And once you realise what you accept, you know, and what you don't, and you have that courage as well. You know, sometimes the benefit of a traumatic childhood, it does make you, make you slightly more, you know, courageous, you know, the, the cracks are where the light gets in. You know, you challenge this privilege that some people have never had kind of shaken and you you think, what is important in life? What do I want to stand for? How do I want to, want to be known? And what's important isn't just those, you know, the big salary or the nice car or the nice house. It's those deeper things that you start to realize are more important. and I think some men have, have seen that and they value things more than the privilege and prepared to sacrifice. I, I always thought Amazon I was always challenging things. And you know, what I heard is that sometimes if a woman or a black woman challenged things, she might get fired. Whereas I had some privilege. It was almost like a, a buffer, like I could burn some of that before I got to the point of being fired. So, you know, privilege was something that I could use. And, and you know, as it was like protective layers that I could burn off by challenging things where, a, you know, a woman or, you know, like a black woman 
wouldn't have that same layer of privilege and protection. So um, I kind of burned through a bit of privilege. <laughs> and it felt like something I could use to advocate for others. And Men for Inclusion obviously does try to dismantle that privilege, isn't it? And then I just wondered, what is your theory of change? So if we are thinking, do you think actually it's just hopeless to try to convince the people who maybe are this average, and if there is such a thing, actually nobody's average, but let's say this stereotypical white heterosexual male middle class in a boardroom who maybe has an, a wife and a nanny at home who doesn't, you know, gender equality does not feature in their universe. Is it worth trying to convince them? Is that something that you you are focusing on with Men for Inclusion? Or actually, you think, not that much point, let's focus on the people who are already halfway there? Yeah, and I think with with Men for Inclusion, you know, like I said, I'm on the advisory board, but there are, you know, various stages of going through, you know, from awareness to understanding to desire to make a change, you know, to actually embedding that within there. And, you know, different people, on that path, I always think of it, I don't know if you ever play the game of Jenga where all the blocks are kind of stacked up. You know, sometimes it's easier to move one of the small pieces nearer the top than one of the ones that's lodged at the bottom. And if you, so yeah, maybe start with the, the people who, and then you, if you start with people who are already supportive and you get them on, on side and build the momentum, you know, like, like with any kind of change management, you're going to have adopters and resistors and, and you kind of have different strategies to work with them. Those people can be quite disruptive if you don't address them and don't make them feel heard. So even with some of the workshops where it's about really recognizing that women are, you know, being facing biases that men aren't, but creating a space for men to talk about those things, like, you know, the fear, I feel, you know, afraid, or I feel, you know, challenged that women are getting the promotions and I'm not. And, you know, whether it's, it's true or not, I think men and for men's mental health as well, to be able to talk to it and feel understood and listened to. And then you have different strategies to work with that, you know, in in different timeframes, but just to say, well, those men are just sexy. That's not going to change anything. You know, maybe there's yeah, I think I found that as well. You know, I posted a lot on, on, on LinkedIn over the years. And sometimes the men who really challenged what I was saying most about inclusion and diversity, it wasn't until I talked about being bullied at school, you know, and, and feeling excluded, you know, as a straight white boy at the time, it really connected, you know, with them as well. And they said, yeah, I was too. And then when you've personally felt excluded, you know, then you can then empathize with others who've been excluded for maybe, you know, bigger things or so sometimes there's ways in that way, you know, there's generally a way to connect with someone, especially if someone's resisting, maybe this, they've been hurt or there's something they've been excluded in the past and now they've got this protective shield. But, you know, if you, there's sometimes a way, you know, to connect with them. What I'm interested in is whether you think, how do you change hearts and minds? Do you think training programs have a place or do you think, well, actually, no, or if yes, what type of training changes people's views on these issues? Yeah, it's interesting with changing hearts and minds. And I, I wrote a series of LinkedIn posts, which became a book about five years ago called Confessions of a Working Father, which was trying to change hearts and minds through telling stories. And, you know, you can have stories in training as well. And I was trying to sh- just share stories of, you know, of my childhood or of how I was as a parent, you know, some, some method. Well, there's no facts and figures here. And it was just, but it was stories and, you know, and that encouraged several men to say, I read your book and now I'm going to take six months parental leave. And this is a Brazilian dad who said, but don't tell my parents because, you know, in Brazil it wouldn't be accepted, but I'm going to do it anyway. And so what I tried so far was, you know, telling stories and trying to break through on an emotional level. I've tried doing um, allyship training like in Europe and, and also in America. 
with mixed success, sometimes you just get a lot of women coming when you want to get a lot of men coming. So this is sometimes a challenge with actually, or if there's a room full of men that say, well, have we done something wrong? You know, is this a corrective activity because we've, you know, there's been a, you know, discrimination or something happening. So how does that relate to training? Yeah, I don't know. There's so many ways, different ways you can do training. Like I'm not an expert on on training and development. I think what, what the reason I got into training and development was because I'd been looking at representation of women and other underrepresented people in conferences. And often people were being sidelined. Oh, this is the main technology conference. This is the separate women in technology conference where all the women went. And I just wanted to get more mainstreaming on the main stage for the main award, not just here are the International Women's Day awards for women, but here are the main awards. You know, my point of view is that it needs to be in the mainstream. So a reason I got into training was to try and make sure that when 10,000 software engineers join Amazon every year. They're not just being trained by men, that, that there's women and there's a variety of different women as experts, you know, training and showing them the, the knowledge, you know, and breaking those assumptions. So it's not just the training, but who's delivering the training, you know, and I've spoken to women engineers who've been, who've delivered training to men and they're, they're, some of the sexist comments they've had, like, how can you train us? You're a woman. How, how do you know about this? So it really kind of can surface some challenges, which you can then address and, you know, women are often, you know, very good at showing that they, they're well qualified and it can highlight, well, maybe that man's not right for our organization if he has these these points of view. There's all kinds of things, even, you know, the social psychology, even around the training, who's giving the training, who's coming, what is it, how do the exercises work, what's the outcome? Just like with social psychology experiments, sometimes it's not the thing itself, it's all of the things and the assumptions around it, which way you can really get the insights and make a difference. Yeah, I think that's so true. When I first set up Litus Plus, I invited people to bring their babies, just purely practical thing. Yeah. You know, I wanted to talk to them about career progression, knew that when you have a new baby, it's often a time when you get all these messages saying, oh, actually, you should now slow down. And Are you sure you want to progress? So I thought, well, actually, we need to speak to those people. And because they have babies, the babies need to come along. But surprise, surprise, the fact that they were talking about leadership with a baby in arms and hearing from senior leaders with a baby in arms was incredibly transformational just because you have, like you say, you changed that yeah. setting ever so slightly. So that's quite interesting. I've got a dream, which is I would love to do somehow a boards and babies type event or, you know, just get like somehow to create an experience that helps boards like see and believe the experiences people got, go through when they have children. Don't quite know how, but um, yeah, if anyone Yeah, it's a great ideas. idea. I love that. It's like, you know, the, the former New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda, when she had a baby, you know, while she was working and it, it changes, you know, assumptions and yeah, it kind of breaks it down. When people bring their children into the office as someone who has a, brings their child in sometimes and it's, it's fun, it, you know, especially if maybe in, in marketing, you're creative and you have a child there doodling on the board or, you know, it's fun. And you, you even see this now mixing between elder care and, and childcare, you know, that, the really great kind of, connections but yeah as you say putting a baby in someone's hand getting to talk about leadership or you know i don't know how many of those were men and women for example or having men with babies in their arms or well maybe we just need to bought, lend babies to anyway, <laughs> borrow a baby <laughs> i need to think it through a bit more but i think it could be this could was be kind of an fun. experiment in covid wasn't it people had the you know i'm not blurring my background some some people will blur their background in case it's a kid or a pet or or it's a mess but yeah it's sometimes mm. <laughs> And then you have these weird shapes in the background and everyone yeah. wonders who it is, which is well, I heard often in COVID, like, you know, men were kind of getting the best room in the house with the closed door. And women were stuck on the kitchen table with the kind of kids behind. But yeah, you kind of start to see, you know, especially people's cats or dogs or, or kids around. But yeah, now everyone, a lot of people are forced back into offices. How do you, 
you know, you're at work, so you need to be in a professional environment and, you know, away from that family. It's a very kind of masculine, autonomous from your family kind of approach, you know, rather than a kind of more feminine, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, we're part of a community and a society and, you know, work and life are kind of mixed together. And so it's an interesting. Yeah, I look forward to seeing how you do that experiment. It's really interesting, actually, that you're saying that these different spheres and as almost actually males are excluded often in that they are, it's also a privilege to be able to have can be annoying to have a baby on your lap don't get me wrong I did have that situation I did actually once when my youngest was born I did a podcast with, with him on my lap worked well but not necessarily something I want to repeat so it can be nice to do that so I think the fact that you have the segregation of the male space being away from the family I think that's also a disadvantage to an extent yeah and men, men can change that men can you know have babies on their laps too and the thing stopping them yeah, absolutely absolutely and many of the our fellows we have about 10 percent of our fellows on our programs are men and who are extremely engaged men who don't subscribe to the 1950s breadwinner stereotype at all. Anyways, we're coming towards the end of our times. I'm sorry, I'm going off tangent massively, but I'm really interested in this topic around allyship. We always finish our podcast with three practical ideas that people could do this week. And ideally they take less than five minutes because our listeners are very busy. So could you share three practical ideas on either how to be an ally to someone, but also how to inspire someone to become an ally? So much about being an ally is, is noticing and looking. So yeah, let's say you're in a, in a meeting, you know, at work. Count, you know, who is invited to the meeting? What's the percentage of men and women? Where do people sit? Notice that. Who speaks first? Who gets interrupted? Who has their ideas acknowledged? You know, there's so much, you know, you can do just to, just to notice these things. And then, you know, as you notice it, you'll feel like, hang on a minute, she hadn't finished her point. Or hang on a minute, he hadn't finished the point he was trying to say. Or, you know, she made that point two minutes ago. But so I think start with observing, start with, with that. I think also you're listening to other experiences. I've, I've mentored and coached, you know, lots of people over the years. And whether they've got any value from it, I've got so much value from listening to their experiences. So I think offering to be a mentor or, you know, a sponsor to, to someone, you know, on the surface to, to guide them in their career, but for you to learn and listen. So I'm, when, I, when I'm mentoring, you know, black women or, you know, women from different backgrounds or even men from different cultures, you know, and what's, what's their experience like? You learn so much, you know, you really open your eyes. Wow. Like I never knew that would happen. Like that would never happen to me, but I, I, you, you start to empathize, you know, with the experiences. So definitely paying attention to people. And you know, I think, you know, you just, being present, I think there's lots of events that are happening and, you know, it's easy to kind of skip them or to deprioritize them, whether they're, you know, for Women's Day or for, for Pride Month or for Black History Month or, you know, or, you know, trans awareness. Pick one of these events, you know, don't, don't think, well, what if they ask me a question? You know, I think just being there and showing your presence there, you know, really makes a difference, you know. So as a man, I've, I've been often going to women's leadership events and I'm the only man. So much of it's also relevant. You know, it's called women's leadership, but it's, it's just, it's useful career development advice and, you know, or, or the Black Employee Network. I was often setting up various events or involved in things at Amazon. So, yeah, I think and sometimes you get out of your comfort zone. Like I went to a, you know, an LGBTQ event with Amazon and I thought, what if people think I'm gay? What if I think, you know, I've got a trans teenager, you know, I'm, I'm pretty open-minded, but it's, it's some, these are going to take you out of your comfort zone, but really open your eyes and open your heart to different people's experiences that you know, you'll never know if you stay in your comfort zone. So think, you know, observe, mm-hmm. kind of listen, and then show up would be my three, you know, tips for being an ally. I love the observe bit. <laughs> I think that's actually such an important starting point that we forget quite often. 
if people want to connect with you or read your book, where should they? Yeah, so LinkedIn is a good place. Brian Ballantyne on LinkedIn. On, you can get my book on Amazon, either printed or on Kindle, Confessions of a Working Father. I don't tend to use Twitter or X much. I'm on Instagram, but that's mainly silly photos and Facebook. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, mainly LinkedIn is probably a good idea. Happy to connect with anyone. Feel free to just, uh, just send me a connection request and say hello. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brian. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, really good to talk to you too. Thanks, you. Thank you so much for listening today. And a special thank you to all of those of you who have connected with me on LinkedIn in the last few weeks. I really, really love hearing from listeners and hearing how you enjoyed the show. So it means a lot. Thank you so much. If you would like to be in touch in real life, do consider joining the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program. It is such a fantastic community of working parents supporting each other to find a way to get careers where you can make a big difference in senior roles, but also do that unapologetically in a way that works for us. And if you want to apply, then the deadline is 20th of March. You can download the brochure for the program on leadersplus.org. Podcasting is also quite a male-dominated environment. If you look at the top charting podcasts, especially outside of the kids and family space, very often it's all led by men. I can't remember the numbers, but it is very well dominated. Just take a look at the charts. And interestingly enough, more females than males listen to podcasts. So another unequal space. And thank you for supporting this podcast by listening to it. But if you want to help us, I guess, have more influence in the space, then please do help by sharing it with your friends and by leaving a five-star review. Thank you so much to all of those of you who've done that already. Have a wonderful week.